0: In music, whenever you hear two sounds that are simultaneous but not in harmony, there is a word that we use to describe that. It's called dissonance. You've, you've heard dissonance if you've ever been to a middle school talent show and heard somebody sing. Um, there's another word for dissonance. It's called annoyance when we think of a music. So, if you've ever, if you've ever had a kid in your house that's learning to play an instrument or something like or an adult that's learning to play an instrument, uh, you, you hear that there's dissonance, it's, it's incongruity, it's a lack of, of harmony. The definition is something like it said. it's this tension or clash. Because there are these two incompatible elements. In music, it's the tones that they just don't work together. And yet you're hearing them at the same time and it, it just grates on your ears. It's painful. Uh, the, the word dissonance is used in other areas of life too. And so maybe you, uh, you have a lung doctor, a pulmonologist I think is a do- lung doctor. But you, you're, you're, you're out around town and you see your, your pulmonologist and she's smoking a cigarette. You're thinking, wait a second, this is crazy. How, you, you, you know what you, who you are, you know what's good for the body, and yet here you are doing something that's very contrary to everything that you say and believe. And so there's dissonance in, in that life. Well, the Corinthian church, as we've already seen in our introduction a few weeks ago, it had a, a dissonance problem. And, and by that I mean there was this major lack of harmony between who they are, their professed identity, and how they're living, the way they're thinking and speaking and behaving. And so there's this disconnect. And so Paul is writing in this letter to to try and bring uh, that dissonance into harmony by calling these Christians to live as the children of God that they already are. That's what this this letter is about. And he does that with each issue, as we're going to see as we work through this letter, by pointing them back to Jesus and what he's done for them. And, and how because of that, and, and now because of that, who they are in Christ. That's what he's laboring to do. The gospel is what will bring them into harmony. And so we talked about the background of, the lat, of this letter in that last recording we did uh, a few weeks ago. And so I'm, I'm not going to try to regurgitate all that. But the, the short version is this. If this is the situation as Paul writes this letter. Paul, Paul was, was instrumental, not causal. The Lord, we're going to see that in these opening verses. God planted the church in Corinth. But, but Paul was instrumental in the gospel taking root in Corinth and the church beginning there. And so he spent over 18 months there instructing and equipping this young church plant, and, and then he moved on, and he left behind this healthy young church and, and solid leadership and as, he, as he went on, but within just a few short uh, years, Paul hears of major problems in Corinth. I mean, it's like the wheels have already come off of this young church, and so there are reports coming to him from different sources about, uh, about significant conflicts, Uh, corruption and confusion, three C's. These are three C's that every church deals with always. Conflicts, corruption, sin, and, and just confusion, theological confusion in their case. And so he writes this letter to them to respond to this. So he takes up all of these different issues that we're going to see in the weeks and months to come, divisions and pride and lawsuits and sexual immorality and marriage, singleness, food, theological issues. And he doesn't just lay down new rules and, and, and complicated rules for them. No, that's not what he does. No, he reframes everything in light of the gospel. That's what ties this letter together, to see everything through the death and resurrection of Christ, that story. That's what they need to see everything. So that's how he works to bring that dissonance that's, that's evident there into harmony. And he wastes no time laying the foundation for that, and he jumps right into it in these opening verses. We just read this. Now, because we know what's coming, we know, we, we, we feel this tension. We know that he's going to really come at them on some different areas in, in their church life. And, and so we, we feel this tension right away in the letter because we, we know there's this gap between their conduct, the way they're living, and their calling, who they are in Christ. And so we just, we just read Paul's opening words, though. Thomas read those, and we, we followed along. And notice, he doesn't express any hint of frustration or disappointment in these opening words, does he? He, 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 he doesn't lay into them. He said, what in the world are you doing there? This is awful. That's not how he begins. What does he do? He begins by thanking God for them. Focusing on God, on God's initiative, God's calling, God's promises, who they are because of what God has done for them. And so our time this morning is going to be focused on that prayer of thanksgiving in verses 4 to 9. We we, we looked at a lot of the background information in verses 1 to 3 a few weeks ago. But I I want to just note again, look at the way Paul addresses them in verse 2. He says, to the church of God, the church is God's. The church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be, called by God to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's that's who they are. They're, they are God's church, the, the universal body of Christ and every local expression like this one of the church and every locale and every language group and every nation and every, every type of church. The, the, every, the, the church exists because what? Because he called, because he set apart, because he is Lord. It's not some man-made sociological phenomenon no, it is the Lord's church. Our identity, brothers and sisters, is rooted in God's activity. That's what that's telling us. And then he goes straight into this prayer of thanksgiving for them. And it's this one long sentence. And so we, we look at it together. Now, again, you know what's coming. You know the, 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 the admonitions that he's going to have for these Corinthians. You know the, the misconduct that's, that's there and he's going to correct But listen, as he gives thanks for them, he's not just blowing smoke here. (laughs) He's not kind of, you know, like greasing the skids a little bit before he can really lay into them. It's not a rhetorical device. It's not, you know, playing mind games with them. That's not it at all. He feels deep, sincere gratitude to God for these believers that he knows very well. He spent almost two years with them. Knows people, been in their homes, been intimately involved in their lives, and he gives thanks for this church, even when there's there's a lot that disturbs him about what's going on there. So, with that said, what I want us to consider as we look at this prayer, there there are reasons, there are reasons to celebrate the Lord of a messy church like this one, like that one in Corinth, like this one here. I mean, we're we're messy. There's problems, and yet there is reason to give thanks to God to celebrate Him in the midst of that. So there's there's four standouts. So the 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 the, the basic sentence is: We give I, I give thanks to my God. That's the core, and then he, and everything else is subordinate to that. He's giving some reasons, and let's walk through those together. First reasons: This is a Christ rooted community. A Christ rooted community. Notice. That, that Paul thanks God that this church is supremely and fundamentally it 's rooted in Jesus Christ. The emphasis here is it 's not on what they have done in themselves you know to keep Christ at the center of their church that 's not his point in this thanksgiving it 's not, it's not their church there was, there was dissonance in fact, there was a gap between the reality of how they were living and the reality of, of what is real but but the, his emphasis is here is not on what they've done to keep Christ at the center. The emphasis is on what Christ has done and is doing in his church. That's what he's, that's what he's thanking God for. As we, read over these, as we read over these verses, these six verses here in this prayer just a moment ago, you heard it again and again. In almost every verse, you, the, the name of Christ. In verse 4, the grace of God was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, they are enriched in every way in him. The testimony that's confirmed among them is the testimony about Christ. They live their lives, verse 7, for the revealing, waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so note in particular, verse 4 and verse 9, kind of the bookends of this Thanksgiving prayer, both emphasize the union that we have with Christ. The, the verse, verse four, the grace of God we enjoy as believers. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but it's not just some sort of generic kind of blob of spiritual stuff. I know sometimes think we get a little fuzzy when we think about a word like grace, and we hear it so much, it's like just God's kind of just got his good spiritual juice for us or something like that. That's not grace. Grace it, it, it's it's unearned benevolent disposition of God's heart towards us. It's his his undeserved favor towards us. And the reason we see, we receive this grace, the reason we benefit from this grace that God gives, why? It's because he says we are in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the only reason. In other words, it's not simply that God's grace is mediated through Jesus Christ. Now that's true, but that's not his point here. What he's saying is this grace we have received, is because we are identified with Christ, are represented in him by virtue of our union with him. That's very specific. In other words, Jesus isn't just the delivery boy uh, of God's grace to the house of our lives. No, we receive God's favor. We receive his benevolent orientation towards us because it's sent to the address of Jesus and we are in him. There's a big difference. And so then in verse 9, look, look down at verse 9, the other, kind of the other end of this prayer, in slightly different language, but, a, but the same point. He says, God is faithful. We'll come back to that. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship, into the participation, the communion, the sharing of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we were called. <clears throat> we didn't just find our way and stumble in there. No, the Lord called us into, through the Spirit, Spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel, he's called us into this real, vital, spiritual communion with Christ. And so he's, he's soaring with thanksgiving here, brothers and sisters. This, this is a messed up church, as we're going to see In so many ways, but he's thankful to God as he considers this fact that they are rooted in Christ. Nothing can change that. To be a Christian means that you are a man or woman in Christ. To be a church means that we are in Christ together. This is fundamental. Everything else in the church stems from this. And this is what Paul's going to do. He's going to labor for the remainder of this letter to this church. He's going to labor to to, to make this church, to make us conscious of that connection and its full implications. That's what we're going to be doing. So everything we do, everything we think, everything we speak is to be centered on flowing from and celebration of our vital connection, our union with Jesus Christ. It's everything. Listen, in, in, our, in our age in, in the West, and in, in our kind of therapeutic age in which we live in, in this culture, our attention is is always turned inward, isn't it? It's always about looking inside. It's looking in, it's looking in. And so it's it's so important when this is the this is the world that we're we're these are the waters we're swimming, it's so important to be constantly reminded that the Christian life is actually centered outside of us. It's centered elsewhere. It's not on the self, it's on the Savior. Our gaze must be continually directed up and away from ourselves to Jesus. This is, this is it, that we are in him. The testimony that sustains us is all about him the hope uh, our hope is that we are waiting for him it's christ church we are always to be looking to jesus pointing one another to christ this is why we gather this is why this is important this is why this is why we labor in everything that we do this is we're we're we're, we're directing one another to christ let me just before we move on let me just ask the question are you in christ are you in Him? Do you have Jesus? Does He have hold of you? Just because you attend a church gathering or you tune in online and, and watch, that doesn't make this a reality. In fact, nothing you can do puts you in union with Christ. No amount of morality or a church attendance or performance, religious performance, personal sacrifice, uh, penance, charity, just general um, niceness as a human being, pleasantness, nothing can move you an inch closer into a relationship with Christ. Nothing we do. It comes, Scripture says, through faith alone. We, we, this is how we began the morning, confessing this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By that I mean we don't, we don't put our confidence in ourselves and what we do or who we are as a, as a human being. No, we say we are bankrupt in and of ourselves. I have nothing to bring to the table here. We have no hope on our own. Our only hope is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Christ lived the perfect life we could never live. And yet he died paying the penalty for our sin. It's, it's on the cross. God treats Christ as if He had lived our wretched life. Why? So that He could treat us as if we lived His perfect life. That's the good news of the gospel. So the question is: Are you trusting in Jesus and what He's done for you today? If not, I, I, I would ask you to pray right now, confessing confessing your helplessness, expressing your need for Christ and what he's accomplished for you because you can't do it on your own. And so if you'll believe in Christ, trust him today, you you can receive this gift of forgiveness and, and new life in Christ, and this can be true of you. It can be said of you today as you walk out of this room. You have been called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Is he calling you even today as this good news is proclaimed? But all of us who are, who are already in Christ, this is, this, he's writing to believers, he's writing to people who are already Christians, and he's saying, don't forget who you are. I thank God that, that first and foremost, you are a Christ-rooted community, and, 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 that, and, and you need to then live out of that identity. That's what he's going to go on to show, and labor to, to minimize the dissonance between that reality and the way that it's expressed in our community together. So first, it's a Christ, Christ-rooted community. Second reason we have to, to celebrate the Lord of even a messy church, it's this. It's, it's, we are a grace-enriched community. Grace-enriched community. Now, in verse 6, there's a little parenthesis, a little aside that we're just going to skip for now, and we'll come back to that. But for now, just read around it, and the sentence is intact if you just take verse 6 out. Look at verse, five, or verse 4 again. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. So the the grace of God, his his favorable orientation toward them, was given to them in Christ by our union with him, and that grace has this particular result that Paul wants to emphasize here in in his thanksgiving. It has produced in them gifts, gifts, spiritual gifts, especially in these areas of speech and knowledge. That's what he highlights, all speech, all knowledge. And he says, no, the two words there, grace and gift, they are they are from the same Greek root. And so the word grace is, in Greek, it's charis, charis. The word gift is charismata. It's just its just an uh, expanded. And so these spiritual gifts, they're gifts of grace. They're not deserved. They're not earned. They are freely given. They are, they are gifts that are truly riches of his grace. And there are two particular gifts that stand out there in Corinth, in this church, if you Visited, if you went to vacation in, the, in, in Corinth in that time and you visited that church, one of those congregations, those little house churches, you would have walked away and you'd have, you'd have gone back home and said, what, what, what stood out to you from those churches? Man, they speech and knowledge, those gifts were at the top. I mean, it, it, that's what defined them. And so there are these two particular gifts, speech and knowledge, that stand out. And these were wonderful, grace-enriching gifts for the church in Corinth. They helped foster a love for knowing the truth and speaking the truth. And we're going to see, again, if you've read ahead, you know what's coming. Um, the, The Corinthian church became very proud of these gifts of speech and knowledge. And it caused all kinds of problems. They began to boast about their speech and knowledge. They loved Their love for speaking the truth morphed into a love for speaking about their knowledge of the truth. Those are very different things. But this is this is what happened. And so they they became like badges of honor that they proudly wore. Ah, we are the church of all speech and all knowledge. And they wanted to be known for that. And so you you can understand if, as we talked about a few weeks ago in that video, the the wider Corinthian culture, it it valued highly rhetoric and, and art, the, that art of persuasion and this kind of secret knowledge. And so these new Christians who swam in that cultural water all of their lives, those values began to kind of infiltrate the church, and they began to think, well, here's the Christian equivalent of those values. Hey, all speech, all knowledge. We got it in spades. We're, we're good. We're, we're this glowing example. And so, so they began to use these gifts for their own self-promotion, and they began to disdain others who didn't possess those gifts, or at least in large supply. And we're going to see there's all kinds of other problems that, that come in this church through spiritual gifts, these and other gifts, and in their Lord's Day gatherings and the way things show up. But so there's a lot of dissonance. There's a major disconnect between this reality that Paul prays with thanksgiving for here and the actual exercise of the gifts in that church. There's a big gap. And Paul's going to deal with those problems later. He's going to deal with the particulars, he's going to deal with the attitude that's behind the problems. But here, what does he do? He simply and sincerely thanks God for these gifts and the way that God's grace has enriched them through these gifts. Even though there were all kinds of abuses of these gifts in Corinth, nevertheless, there was this spiritual reality that God was enriching the life of this church in this city through these gifts of speech and knowledge. And he gives thanks listen brothers and sisters we are not immune we are not immune as a church from the abuse of god's grace gifts to this local body pride and self-promotion they are ready to show their ugly heads here and they do it in lots of different ways but we 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 come back though to what paul says here about spiritual gifts and he says they are what they're evidence of god's enriching grace towards us Meaning there should be no boasting in, in the gifts except in God who's given them. It's only freely given by His grace. They're not, made to make, they're not given to make much of us and promote ourselves. They're given that we might use them for the good of the church and that He might be made much of. And So the existence of gifts in this local church, even though they're not always faithfully exercised and they can be misused, it's entirely of God's grace and He, should, he is to be thanked for these gifts. And so we are being enriched by his grace through these gifts given to us. And I thank God for that enriching grace that we benefit from. And we've seen it even during this difficult time. And when we've been scattered, I see the, the gifts that many of you have and are exercising. And, and I see the grace of God that's, that, that's enriched this church as you've done that faithfully. Not perfectly, but... But the, we, we, we've lacked nothing. We lack nothing we need because of God's grace that, that is, is, is lavished upon us. All right, third reason we have to celebrate even in a messy church is we are, we are a word-established community, a word-established community. I'll come back to that little parenthesis that we took out a moment ago. Let's, let's plop it back in here at verse 6. And so in the middle of this talk about God's enriching grace, Manifesting itself in, in these spiritual gifts of speech and knowledge. What does he say? Verse 6. Even as, just as, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. this, this will come back. But just that word confirmed, it, it means to be established, to be made sure, it guaranteed. It's a legal term. And so what he's saying is this. The Corinthians being re- enriched by God's grace in the giving of these gifts, it's what? It's evidence that the testimony of Christ has been established in them. It's a statement of the powerful working of the testimony about Jesus in them. That's what he's saying. And he thanks God for it. The testimony of Christ, testimony about Christ, what is that? It's, it's short. It's, it's the gospel. That's what it is. He uses a synonym, testimony, because he's using this kind of legal metaphor with confirmed. But, but in, preaching the, in preaching the gospel in Corinth, Paul and others, what are they doing? They're bearing witness. They're testifying to the good news about Christ, his death, his resurrection. Chapter 15, this will be very clear. This is what he's talking about. And God himself, he, he guaranteed, he confirmed the truth of the message by enriching them with these spiritual graces and gifts. And again, look at the emphasis. It's not, it's not on them. and what they're, It's on God and what God has done through Christ in this church. He has confirmed the testimony about Christ in them. God has used the God's gospel. God has used the word, the testimony concerning Christ to establish them, to set them securely in the stream of God's gracious, enriching work. That's the work that the Lord has done in that church, in that messy, dissonant church. <coughs> God had confirmed the gospel there. And so he's going to make it clear that the same testimony about Christ that first confirmed them and the, the, is the same gospel, the same word that they continually need. This is what he's going to do. He's going to layer that over every, every messy challenge that they face. It's the word it's the word about Christ. It's the proclaimed word centered on Jesus and his work, energized by the Holy Spirit that God uses to sustain us and transform us, brothers and sisters. But isn't there a dissonance here in our lives, in the church, in this word that powerfully established us, that God used to powerfully establish us? It can become muted and it can become an afterthought and background noise. Brothers and sisters, this is why the word of God, particularly the gospel, must be central in, in the lifeblood of what we do, is testimony about Christ pray with me this year. Pray with me as we walk through this study of 1 Corinthians in the coming months. Pray for the preaching and teaching of the word. Pray for our Sunday school teachers when we begin to gather and pray for the students as they're gonna start walking through Philippians together over Zoom and, and using videos and different things to do that. Pray for the, the ministry of the word among us that, the, that God would open the heavens and that, and, that, and that he would come down and own this ministry of the word and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and the power. It would awaken on all of us an appetite for the word. The testimony of Jesus as it's proclaimed, the gospel that it would, would, would penetrate, would take root more deeply in our hearts. But again, this is what he's doing. He's praying, he's thanking God in the midst of all of the dissonance and all the gap, the disconnect between who they are and the way they're living. He's saying, you are rooted in Christ. Nothing can shake that. You are enriched by God's grace. He is at work, even in ways you can't see. And he is gifting you, and, and, and he's demonstrated that. And, and he has, he has established, you are, established you in the word. He's confirmed that this testimony about Christ in you. And finally, what do we see? We are a future-secured community. Future-secured. There's this future orientation in this thanksgiving for them He's thankful for what God has done in saving them. He's thankful for what God continues to do in them and through them. He's thankful for what God will do in them to the end. He says, you were were enriched by God's grace through the giving of these gifts, verse 7, as you what? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we're going to make it. (laughs) That's good news, isn't it? Um, Some days it may not feel like it. (laughs) But we will make it. Why? God will do it. (laughs) He will sustain us. He will present us blameless before the Lord as we're we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise God. The word sustain, verse 8. It's the same word translated confirmed in verse 6 that we just saw. So what he's saying, God will confirm, he will make absolute sure that we are kept until the end. What a promise, brothers and sisters. Now again, the, the emphasis here, it's not on the posture of the Corinthians. It's not, he's not saying you, you're, you're so eagerly waiting for the Lord's return and you're, you're living in light of, of the second coming. That's not, that's not the, the essence of what he's saying. There are actually a lot of indicators in this letter that they really didn't have much of a future orientation. They were were kind of proud of their past. They were living for the present. And and there there was a dissonance between their thinking about the future and the reality. But what Paul's doing and focusing here in this Thanksgiving, it's not on their attitude about the future. He's thankful for the reality. No matter what their feelings are about the future and what their eschatology is, the reality is they are in this time of waiting for the coming revelation of Jesus Christ And the return of Christ. And until that day, what he's thankful for is God, you will sustain them, you will keep them, and you will present them blameless before the Lord on that day. And he's thankful. Church, no matter what we face, no matter, no matter how long this pandemic disrupts our plans, (coughs) no matter what trials we go through as a church, no matter what challenges. We're presented with, no matter what limitations we have, no matter how badly we stumble and fall and sin, we have a bright future. (laughs) We have a bright future. We are not home yet. We are in the foyer. We are not even in the room. And we are just we just get a little taste and we get a little hint of what's to come. I know it seems so big, it seems so long now, but it is, it is, it is just a vapor. And eternity awaits. So we, we have a bright future, and that is reason to give thanks, brothers and sisters. Again, it's remarkable. Paul expresses this confidence to a, about a church who's, whose current behavior is anything but blameless, as we're going to see. He's going to have strong words of admonition for, for them as the way they're living and thinking and talking. But the key here in this thanksgiving, it lies in the subject of the verb. What is it? It's he, God. God will do this. Paul, if Paul's confidence lay in the Corinthians themselves and how much they're going to be able to pull themselves up and get out of this situation, that hope is unfounded. But his confidence is in God. That is our hope as well, brothers and sisters. We, we, for we, we are in no less need of forgiveness and grace and God's keeping power to sustain us as they were. We need it just as badly. But one day, brothers and sisters, the Lordship of Christ will be on full display. Every eye will see him as he is. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we, we have that to look for. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for. And then, then our real eternal business will begin. Face to face with Jesus, reveling in his glory, delighting in his love, adoring him with all of the saints and angels gathered together in his presence forever. And to whatever extent we're able to, and I don't know, but to whatever extent we're able to look back on our lives now in this time that we're living in, we won't be saying, way to go, Justin. You did good, buddy. That's not how I'm going to be talking to myself. What are we going to do? We're going to be saying, thank you, God. Thank you, you you were sustaining us, you kept us to the end, you presented us not pretty good, better than average, you presented us blameless before the Lord on that day. You were working powerfully in ways that we could not even see while we were waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our only hope is what? Verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our hope. God is faithful because we are in Christ. That's reason to hope, even in the midst of messiness. just two statements to, to put arms around the whole passage here. The first thing I would say is this. The church is bigger and smaller than you tend to think. It's bigger and smaller than we tend to think. And what I mean by this, and I'm kind of going back to verse 2, but looking at the whole passage here, it's bigger. We're not just random people with some kind of common interest who live in a similar area and we meet together on occasion. That's not, that's not the church. We are part of a bigger story. We are part of a cosmic drama. We, we have a role to play in God's rescue story. Whatever problems we have, whatever weaknesses and faults we possess, and there are many, we, whatever limitations that seem to hinder us and our effectiveness, we have been caught up into the story of God's eternal elective purpose. So it's bigger. It's bigger than us as individuals. It's bigger than Baraka Bible Church. It's, it's bigger than this area. It's bigger than this nation. It's bigger than this generation so the same Lord over our little church at this particular time is the same Lord who governs the church around the world at all times. And so our church is is a small branch in a much larger operation. So it's bigger. So we need that sense of proportion, brothers and sisters, because we can begin to think of, uh, we can get so focused on our efforts and our activities and our successes and our failures and, 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 and miss that larger. The church is bigger than us. We need to learn to see ourselves within the story, that bigger story of God and his grace. Why? So that one, we don't despair. It is, it's bigger than our failures. But also, too, that we don't get puffed up with pride. It's not ultimately about us. So it's bigger. On the other hand, the church is smaller. And what I mean is, is Paul is writing to this particular church, this particular time, this particular location. This the church of God in Corinth. And, 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 and this, the particular challenges that they're facing, he's addressing those. So we need to understand what we do does matter in light of eternity. So I'm not trying to be cynical and say, ah, it doesn't matter anyway. We're just a little small fish in a big pond. That's not it. We there is a weight and there's an urgency to what we're doing. So we keep those two together. The second thing I'll say, and we're done. The church is, is meant to be a magnet for gratitude, not a target for complaint. And uh, complaining is easy, isn't it? I mean, I, harsh criticism is, is very natural for me. It's not hard, and for most of us, in critique. And, but, but cultivating a grateful heart for the church, for brothers and sisters in Christ, around you that's what Paul sets before us here and there's a wonderful example even though this church is riddled with problems he 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 genuinely sincerely thanks God for them I'm going to read a quote and we'll end with this it's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together well-known book but just listen to how he says he says if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed you notice the emphasis is on God's places here Even where there is no great experience, it's not always magical, is it? (laughs) It's not right now. We're spaced out and trying to figure out how to interact. There may be no great experience, no discoverable riches, but actually much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us in Christ Jesus. All right, that's for you. This is for me. <laughs> he, say, he goes on. This applies in a special way to the complaints often heard from pastors about their congregations. A pastor should not complain about his congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God a congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before God and men. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. Huh. Paul, Paul models for us this this thankful stance that Bonhoeffer prescribes. He's he's able to give thanks to God for this problematic Corinthian church because he recognizes that Christian community, as Bonhoeffer goes on to say, he says, it's not an ideal which we must realize. It's not a goal that we're striving after. He says, it's rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. That's why Paul says this. It's a mess in Corinth. But he says, that aside, I thank God, this is reality. You are rooted in Christ. You are being enriched by his grace. You are established in the word and you have a bright future, brothers and sisters. No matter how messy it is, let's get that out front. And everything else is gonna gonna be gonna grow and stem from those realities that cannot be touched. And brothers and sisters, this is, we constantly gotta come back here and we're gonna be doing that over the coming weeks. See, everything in light of those realities. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are faithful. Our hope is not in our faithfulness, it's in yours. Your faithfulness means you will continue to forgive us, you will continue to sanctify us, you will continue to protect and lead and help and sustain us as a church to the end when Christ returns. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.